this is Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now, today, I wanted to dive into a topic that's sort of been top of mind lately. And that's because I'm generally unnerved by people who are seem to be egomaniacs or narcissists or really, really stuck on themselves. In this line of work, you really do encounter a lot of people who seem completely self-obsessed. And it got me thinking, gee, what's the difference between someone who seems like they have a bit of an ego and someone who is a genuine clinical pathological narcissist? In doing some of this research, I sort of realized that narcissistic personality disorder, much like gaslighting, is one of those things that can be really useful in understanding our relationship with people around us. And this is especially true when you think about people who are raised by narcissists. Yes, absolutely. And perhaps a good place to start is with the definition. What is narcissistic personality disorder, or NPD? Narcissistic personality disorder is part of the cluster B, or dramatic group of disorders, and is a mental illness that manifests as an excessive preoccupation with personal adequacy, power, vanity, and prestige. People with NPD appear to be arrogant or appear to believe they have an unjustified sense of entitlement and demonstrate grandiosity in their beliefs or behavior. They have a strong desire for admiration and praise, but seem to lack any sense of empathy or ability to appreciate perspectives of others. Now, although this disorder is sort of characterized with seeming like you're better than others and all of that, a lot of times at its core, people who have this disorder actually feel really inferior or they feel like they're, you know, they're not good enough. And so it's kind of a defense mechanism against those feelings by acting like you're the best ever, you're better than others, and putting yourself on a pedestal. So it's kind of a, a mask almost to, to hide how fragile you are, the art, how you feel, or the part of you that's really vulnerable to any kind of criticism. Yes. Uh, this is actually, so again, one of the reasons why I was interested in this topic is, you know those people in your life where you're thinking, I don't know what it is about this person. We just can't seem to communicate. We just can't seem to click. Everything is about them. Like it just, we can't get on the same level. It kind of dawned on me like, oh, there are people who, for whom that is a pathological problem. You know, we're not on the same page. It's a, it's a clinical problem they are dealing with where they are not capable of understanding and appreciating the perspectives of others. They are not capable of, of having a, a normal sense of who they are because of some trauma in their background or because of some sort of clinical disorder. Yeah. And like you said at the top, I think this is really useful to know because there's a difference between having this disorder or going through kind of a phase or being self-absorbed. And I think it's important to be able to recognize that. And I would say one of the most requested topics we get, probably the second most requested topic we get, is how to deal with toxic people or how to recognize toxic people. So I think a lot of us are looking for more tools to recognize these people and possibly, if necessary, how to deal with them or cut them out of our lives. Yeah, I actually, it's, it doesn't surprise me that our listenership is mostly women and that women are writing in for advice on dealing with people like this, because I think as women, we are taught to internalize things so much. And so if you deal with someone who is really, really toxic or really, you know, 
our inclination is to be like, am I being crazy? And then finding out that actually there's a word for this, there's a, a community for this or whatever, that can be really empowering. So it doesn't actually surprise me that women are the ones who are writing in being like, yo, tell me I'm not crazy that, this, that I'm having this really strange interpersonal reaction with someone that almost seems like they have a pathological problem. In fact, I think there are a lot of people out there who do have real stuff they need to unpack. But rather than doing that, they're just inflicting it on us. And I think by on us, I mean women. (laughs) And it's hard to recognize when you need to cut someone out or it, it can feel like a failure, but it absolutely isn't. And a lot of literature is careful to mention that while NPD can start showing while you're a teen, most teenagers do go through a normal, healthy, narcissistic phase. I bet a lot of us can relate, which is not to be confused with NPD. That's different. Most of us do grow out of it, realizing the world does not, in fact, revolve around us and our teenage selves and lives. Exactly. So if you find yourself dealing with someone who is an adult, who is full grown, but seems to still have that youthful attitude that the world revolves around them and that other people exist solely to to for them to relate to themselves through you're thinking you might be thinking oh that person could be a narcissist according to the personality disorder awareness network narcissistic personality disorder can often be the result of childhood abuse when a child is abused or when they experience trauma the mind attempts to discover a method to help forget about the wounds and prevent this abuse from happening again As a defense mechanism, narcissism develops. So it's kind of like what you were saying before, Annie, in terms of it being a mask. Researchers say that it's similar to a bulletproof emotional shield that has been erected as an attempt to entirely protect their feelings and belief that they are inferior in some way. And people with NPD have an overwhelming fear of powerlessness, as perhaps their power to be safe was taken away by somebody more powerful than them through abuse or neglect And erecting a defense that manifests as superiority serves to protect the mind and ensures that they don't become a victim again. NPD can also develop as a result of preoccupied or unresolved attachments with primary caregivers, at times perhaps with overindulgence alternating with neglectful parenting. So according to healthdirect.org, here are some specific symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder. Inability to listen to others, fantasizing about power, beauty, and success, exaggerating achievements and abilities, superiority specifically toward people perceived as lower in status, lack of awareness regarding others, increased risks of using drugs and alcohol, social withdrawal, inflated sense of entitlement, obsession with class and status, exploiting others for personal gain, lacking empathy, especially for perceived weakness. So again, they go on and on. Basically, it's someone who thinks they're better than others, prioritizes their own feelings at expense of hurting others, and just generally doesn't seem to understand that other people exist in the world. Yeah, and I wanted to mention this other sign. Can write off friends permanently over small or imagined issues? Because I had a friend who did this, and if, say, she was slow to respond to a text or something, I would immediately think, oh, I've done something and we're not friends anymore. It it was just always in the back of my head that, and I wouldn't know what it was, you know? Like, I would have no reason to think that. But just the fact that, I'd seen her do it so many times, just get rid of friends, friends that she'd been friends with for a long time over something that at least to me seemed small or at the very least you could work through it if you had the desire to. So I I just remember this kind of constant 
thought in the back of my head with that with that relationship that it could end at any moment and I would have no control over it. Who can live like that? Like who wants to live thinking that the other shoe is always going to drop and this person could drop you like that, like a bad habit so quickly if over nothing and that you like just living knowing that you have no idea whether or not this friendship is going to last based on nothing, like not even knowing what you did. Yeah, it, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't fun. And there was always this kind of second guessing of everything and wondering whether or not something you had said that you thought was innocuous could have possibly offended this person. So I guess, I guess it does turn the relationship into all about all about them. Yeah. And that's that's like a hallmark of narcissistic behavior is whether they're conscious of it or not, manipulating others so that relationships are always biased toward them and their feelings. And so it doesn't matter that Annie is living in sort of perpetual fear that she's offended a friend because she doesn't want to offend a friend. What really matters is the friend's reaction. And like, it just gives, it just gives them all the power. It's really so manipulative. It is. And another hallmark of NPD is unwillingness or inability to admit you're wrong. So perhaps... In this example, this friend realizes that whoever she's angry with hasn't done anything wrong, but you can't, she can't admit that either. So it doesn't ever get resolved. Yeah, that actually reminds me a lot of our episode on gaslighting, because when I think about my relationship with someone they haven't been diagnosed, but like I suspect as a narcissist, at least has narcissistic behavior tendencies, it used to be this thing where I would fantasize about getting them on tape and being like, well, you said this and Earlier, you said that, like, and just having to get them to admit, like, you you were wrong, you lied. But then coming to realize that not only was that never going to happen, but that I had to let go of that desire, right? That they were who they were and that I couldn't control or fix them. And that even if in my if my fantasy came true that I got them to admit that they were wrong or they said the wrong thing or that they lied, it probably would feel empty because for them they would have a way of, of wiggling out of it, right? So even if I got them on tape lying and it was indisputable proof that they had said the wrong thing or lied or, or been manipulative or whatever, they would still find a way to be like, oh, well, here's why I wasn't actually wrong and actually you're wrong. Like there, there, there would be, like that is a hallmark of narcissistic behavior is always finding a way to make it not your fault. Yes, and as I've said many times before on this show, should be one of my my slogans, even though it's a sad one. I believe that people can find a way to justify their behavior. They will find a way. So it's not their fault. If they yeah. want to enough, yeah. You know, it's like that Jurassic Park line that <laughs> yeah. Jeff Goldblum has. Life er, finds a way. I think it's narcissism finds a way. <laughs> that's actually what he really meant. I, I believe that's the case. Surprise, surprise, men are more narcissistic than women. Probably surprising nobody. According to the DSM-4TR, narcissistic personality disorder is diagnosed in between 2% and 16% of the population in clinical settings, between 0.5 to 1% of the general population. The DSM-4TR proceeds to tell us that most narcissists, 50 to 75% of all patients, are men. Now, this stat actually corresponds with the overall research around narcissistic behavior. The Journal of Psychological Bulletin study compiled 31 years of narcissism research and found that men consistently scored higher in narcissism across multiple generations, regardless of age. Quote, narcissism is associated with various interpersonal dysfunctions, including an inability to maintain healthy long-term relationships, 
Unethical Behavior and Aggression, says lead author Emily Gravala, PhD, Assistant Professor of Organization and Human Resources in the UB School of Management. At the same time, narcissism is found to show boosts of self-esteem, emotional stability, and the tendency to emerge as a leader, she says. By examining gender differences in narcissism, we may be able to explain gender disparities in these important outcomes. Probably surprising nobody. This study basically found that when it comes to things like feeling entitled, which are connected to narcissism, men score a lot higher than women. The researchers examined more than 355 journals, articles, dissertations, manuscripts, and technical manuals, and the gender differences in three aspects of narcissism, leadership and authority, grandiose and exhibitionism, and entitlement. They found the widest gap in entitlement, suggesting that men are more likely than women to exploit others and feel entitled to certain privileges. So basically, men be privileged and entitled, and that's why they're so narcissistic. <laughs> is that is that what it boils down to? That's that's really like like too long didn't read. Men are privileged, and thus. But I think it's interesting because when I was doing this research, I feel like common knowledge would be that oh, women are narcissists. Women, you know, think they're so great. Like women are put on a pedestal. Like I think the common attitude seems to suggest that women are more narcissistic than men. But the research does not bear that out at all. Right. It's interesting how many times we're finding that as we research topics where it's seen as, I don't know, women are more more emotional, but it doesn't, research doesn't seem to bear that out either. It's just these things we've sort of told ourselves so much that we have accepted, accepted them to be true. And according to Jeffrey Kluger, who wrote The Narcissist Next Door, basically, he says that society sort of is okay with narcissism from men. That with, like, with a lot of things, same way that like when men are aggressive at work, it's seen like as a good thing, but if a woman does it, it's a bad thing. When a man is a narcissist, we are much more okay with it and much more likely to accept it than we are with women, according to Kluger. Right. This becomes especially difficult to navigate when your parent is a narcissist, which is what we want to focus on after this quick break. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. From the Washington Post, quote, children don't offer the type of continuous positive feedback narcissists crave, and narcissist parents tend to react in one of two ways. Dervisula and W. Keith Campbell, a professor of psychology at University of Georgia and an expert on narcissism, say some lose interest in their children entirely and look for other sources of validation. Others view their children as a reflection of themselves and become hyper-involved and controlling. In both cases, disconnection is the key. Even the overly involved narcissistic parent is emotionally detached and lacks warmth. Yeah, narcissistic parents are exclusively and possessively close to their children and may be especially envious of and threatened by their child's growing independence. The result may be what has been termed a pattern of narcissistic attachment, with the child considered to exist solely to fulfill a parent's wishes and needs. And what makes me so sad about that is this idea that if you're a child of a narcissistic parent, you only feel loved if you exhibit behaviors that your parent can take pride in, and that you only exist as a reflection of your parent. You don't have your own sense of self as an independent person, adult or otherwise. You just feel like you're just a like your parent's leg or something, that you only exist as a offshoot of your parent and that your, your entire existence is based around making them look good, making them feel fulfilled, making them feel valid and worthy, which is so sad and messed up. Yeah, 
it's you'll never satisfy that parent. You will never be enough for that parent. And that is so hard for a child to understand. Commonly, parents attempt to force their children to treat themselves as though they are the parent's puppets or else be subject to punishment such as emotional abuse. Personal boundaries are often disregarded with the goal of molding and manipulating the child to satisfy the parent's expectations. So something I found so telling in the research around boundaries is that parents who are narcissists do not like it when their children have boundaries with them. Their ultimate goal is to sort of be the person in charge of how their child interacts with the world. And something I found really telling was that when a lot of adult children of narcissists try to put boundaries in place, they might react as if these boundaries are unacceptable. But in most cases where there is a narcissistic parent, there is a clear boundary that the parent understands. And that is that the child is not supposed to tell others what is going on in this household, right? And so it's an illustration of the fact that these parents are completely willing to understand boundaries when those boundaries benefit them. But when it comes to their child putting up normal, healthy boundaries to protect their own well-being, it seems like boundaries are completely unacceptable. Right. When I was reading through all of this research, I kept thinking how often we see this in media. I was just example after example of movie or TV show with a narcissistic parent and what you were just talking about reminds me right off, right away of Black Swan with Natalie Portman and her, she's living in that apartment with her mom. And in the movie, she's like 26. But her mom is so controlling and kind of using Nina as a puppet to become the ballerina that she never got to because she got pregnant with Nina. Oh, my God. Let me tell you, like, there is nothing like, ugh, like, I could talk all day, but I will just say this. If you are the child of a parent like that, where your role is to sort of fulfill this destiny that your parent never fulfilled, and maybe they didn't fulfill because of your birth or your or like they had to provide for you, there is no winning. Like even if Nina was the best ballerina, the skinniest, the prettiest, the top of her field, if her mother is like an, an empty well of need, there's there's just no filling it. Like it doesn't matter how good she is, it is a losing game that she cannot win. Right. And there's a scene where Nina is trying to, like, lock her mom out because she has no locks on her door and her mom just busts in all the time. So she, like, puts a piece of wood so that her mom can't get in. And that just reminds me very much of this whole discussion about boundaries and how her, her in the movie, her mom got so angry with her, like, why are you doing this? How dare you <laughs> try to keep me out of your room? Yeah, that reminds me. I mean, I really connected with that movie and like when I was a kid, like we weren't allowed to, have, we didn't have locks on our doors. The movie does not explore this. But when I was watching that scene, I remember thinking there, there was a cultural point to be made there because a lot of families of, you know, first generation immigrants or people of color, like the idea of family boundaries, that is made to seem like something that is very unusual, right? So if you were to be like, oh, I need, to, I need my privacy, like privacy is not a thing that a lot of children of immigrants were really given, particularly when they were young. But even if you were an adult or like nearing adulthood, living in your in your, the house of your parents, privacy is not something that is commonly given. So yeah, I grew up thinking that my white friends who had some expectation of privacy, some expectation of being able to have an inner world of their own that was that their that their family was not privy to. I grew up thinking that was the wildest thing in the world. Like I had never heard of such a thing. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized, oh, it doesn't matter 
who you are, what cultural background you come from. It's okay to have boundaries. It's okay to have an expectation of privacy, particularly as you reach adulthood. You're not ungrateful if you want to lock your door sometimes to get to get a moment to yourself. You're not ungrateful if you want to put up a healthy boundary to protect your own inner sense of who you are. I, I grew up thinking, I think a lot of folks might identify with this. I grew up thinking that if you put up a boundary around you and family, that you were a bad person and that you were ungrateful. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized, oh, boundaries are healthy. And when you put up boundaries, even between people that you love and that you're close to, it helps you relate to the world at large in a healthier way. Because if you grow up in a, in a life where like, you don't deserve boundaries, anyone can take advantage of you. You just, you just become someone who just exists. You only function to please others. And that's not healthy. This is a tangent, but you understand <laughs> what I'm saying. Yes, and um, this, it reminds me of when I was, I don't know, probably taking French and Spanish in high school. There was always a section about uh, the differences between family and I remember reading, and I would love for uh, people from Europe to write in about this, but I would remember reading a section in the book like, in France, you don't go up to your room and close your door. They'll think something's wrong with you and you're sick. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it was in my textbook. <laughs> so please write in uh, if that is the case. Uh, but we should get back to talking about narcissism. Your point about Black Swan actually really does correspond with the research Carol McBride's famous book, Will I Ever Be Good Enough? Healing the Daughters of Narcissistic Mothers, points out that daughters who tend to face particular difficulties with narcissistic mothers, in part because their mother often sees them as competition. She writes, a narcissistic mother sees her daughter more than her son as a reflection and extension of herself rather than a separate person with her own identity. So really, I mean, Black Swan really demonstrates that very well, that Nina, her only way to function is as a part of her mother that she doesn't, she's not able to have her own identity that you need to have as an adult. Yes, and when things get really bad, it's a form of abuse. Quote, narcissistic abuse takes place when, in the midst of a narcissistic presentation, the narcissist chronically places his or her needs and sense of self-worth well above those of others, willing to harm another in the process. And that is a quote from John Duffy, licensed clinical psychologist and author of The Available Parent. And he told that to Self Magazine. So one of the things that I found really awful and telling is how narcissistic behavior can really tear apart a family and leave a black hole where, you know, healthy family interactions should be. One hallmark of how narcissistic families behave is that a narcissistic parent will commonly choose one or sometimes more children to be the sort of golden child and then another to be the scapegoat. The narcissist identifies with the golden child and provides privileges to him or her as long as the golden child does as she wants. The golden child has to be cared for and by everyone in the family. The scapegoat, by comparison, has no needs and gets to be the one that does all the caring. The golden child can do no wrong and the scapegoat is always at fault. And this kind of creates a natural tension where the golden child and the narcissistic parent are on one side and they, they all sort of think the narcissistic parent is so great and they're all sort of like in cahoots and the scapegoat, the person who is not the golden child, is on the outside. And it just is so isolating and sort of just makes you feel, if, if you are the scapegoat, it just makes you feel crazy and isolated from your own family. So I was just really struck by how narcissistic behavior can really poison other family dynamics and relationships. Just that one person can like ruin an entire family dynamic. Yeah. And this on a like kind of humorous note reminds me of Friends. 
and Monica and Ross, their parents and that that whole relationship because Ross could do no wrong. And Monica was constantly just letting her parents down. And they were kind of pitted against each other in that way. And there's a whole episode about when they sort of realize that that dynamic has been going on. I think in season one, so it's pretty early. It's addressed pretty early, but... Yeah, it can tear apart a family. And a lot of times you might not even realize what's going on. Exactly. And you probably would just live thinking, yeah, my family and I have a weird dynamic and I feel isolated and I feel like a black sheep and I see my sibling getting along great with my family and not sort of realize that that, you might internalize that as something wrong with you and not realize that it's actually a really toxic and manipulative family dynamic being driven by an unhealthy person. Yeah, In the Washington Post piece, one adult child of a narcissist says she feels like she spent her formative years wearing a mask of the person her mom wanted her to be. Jennifer Doig's mother was a classic narcissist, alternately abandoning her and expecting her to hold the household together. And now as an adult with children of her own, Doig still struggles to carve a path separate from her mother's expectations. I feel like I've worn a mask my entire life, she says. I need to be who I am, and I don't even know who that is. And that's a hard place to be when you're 41 years old. And I think her story really illustrates how hard it can be to be raised by a narcissist and then start your own family. Because if you've been, if you've been told your entire life, the only thing that matters in your entire existence is how you reflect on me, how do you know who you are? How do you shepherd your kids into establishing healthy boundaries and relationships with others is probably very, very difficult. Yeah. And another woman who was raised by a narcissist, Sarah Shaw, she says her mother focused on her appearance and weight intensely and groomed her from early childhood to marry a rich man. And when Shaw was in the hospital with a brain injury and a broken neck and back after being hit by a car, her mother's top priority was Shaw's appearance. One of the first things she did was call my hairdresser because my hair was a mess, Shaw recalls. This was before they even knew I was going to live or die. But what was really sick about the whole thing was the whole time I was thinking, maybe now my mother will love me because she almost lost me. That's so sad. And also probably relates to this idea of mothers and daughters, narcissism playing out in a kind of competitive way where like hyper obsession about looks to that level has to be some sort of real sort of, I'm competitive about your looks. Your looks are very important to me. Yet I want you to look good so that I can look good. Like, it's just this mixed bag of stuffness. Yeah. And again, I feel like that's something we see over and over in media. The the mother who's always harping at the daughter to, to lose weight or to do something about her hair or to get a better fashion sense. I, I just, I feel like we see that all the time. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of shadows of my own experience in these stories where, like, I grew up in a house where you had to look your best all the time. And I remember when I would go to college, when I would come home after finals, and you know when you have finals, you're, you're always, like, in sweatpants, you haven't showered, you're looking a mess. When I would come home for a break after finals, sometimes I would, I would purposely not come home because I didn't want to hear it about, oh, like, you couldn't get your nails done, you couldn't get your hair done. And I'm like, when would I have done that? I've been in finals, you know. And I I see myself sort of exhibiting a little bit of that behavior as an adult, where if I'm not able to like get yada, yada, yada done, I'm like, oh, well, I guess I just won't, you know, I I find myself isolating myself socially if I don't look a certain way. And I think that's definitely because of things that were 
imparted on me as a child that were very important. So it was, it was, you didn't leave the house if you didn't look a certain way. And, you know, I think when kids internalize that their self-worth is in their weight, their hair, their looks, their this, their that, if they internalize that their self-worth is in things other than who they are, I think that's stuff that sticks with them forever. Like that sticks with you until you're an adult. It doesn't go away when you grow up. It just becomes stuff you grapple with in adulthood. Yeah. Just being able to realize that that is something that you're grappling with is it's a huge step. So hopefully this will help some people. Uh, being raised by a narcissist can impact adult children. Those raised by narcissists have higher than average rates of depression and anxiety, lack of self-regulation, eating disorders, low self-esteem, an impaired sense of self, substance abuse, and perfectionism. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. We have a tendency to think that children, you know, stuff just goes over their head, they'll grow out of it, they're not going to remember this, but they really do. I mean, these things don't go away. They just become things we have to talk about in therapy when we're an adult, you know? So it's like, it's so important to raise your kid in a nurturing home where they understand that they are valued for who they are, even if who they are does not reflect well on you. Even if who they are is complicated and messy and confused and moody and blah, 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 and gets D's in school, understanding that you are accepted and loved by your family is so important. And again, when people talk about how they feel growing up with the parents of narcissists, it's feeling like they only are loved for how they can reflect well on their parent, not for who they are. And that's a terrible way for a kid to feel. Yes. And as of now, there isn't a ton of research or studying being done about the kids of people with NPD. The impact of being raised by a narcissist isn't well documented on an individual level, and it's been even less studied on a societal scale. Campbell has written more than 100 scientific articles and three books about the narcissism epidemic, but he admits parenting is a gaping hole in our understanding of narcissism. We rarely study the parents' narcissism and then predict what will happen to the kids, says W. Keith Campbell, who is a professor of psychology at University of Georgia and an expert on narcissism. So to deal with this lack of real information about how these kids you know, grow up to be impacted by their narcissistic parents, a lot of folks are turning to the internet. And we'll talk more about that after this quick break. We're back. Thank you, sponsor. So as we said earlier, there isn't really a ton of studying and research being done on the children of parents who are narcissistic. But, you know, these children grow up and they, they start searching for answers. And a lot of folks have found answers on online communities. The subreddit Raised by Narcissist has 277,000 members. And I logged on at 10 a.m. And at that time, there were almost 2,000 members online. So it's an active community if you log on at various times, like it's there's always someone there reading or posting or both. Yeah, and the subreddit was established because there was a recognized need for a space where children raised by abusive parents who got or are getting away with it could relate to one another and discuss the issues, says a moderator, Ash Williams, who is 24. Yeah, and I think what's so important to point out about this subreddit is kind of what I mentioned before. I think a lot of people who grow up in abusive or toxic or f***ed up family situations, I think a hallmark of it is silence and shame. And it's growing up, not inviting friends over because you just, you just can't, you don't know what it's going to be like. And so you just don't do that. It's growing up feeling isolated. It's growing up when someone asks you about your family, changing the subject, and then just sort of like knowing that there's this f***ed up thing inside of you that you're not allowed to talk about. I think that 
when you grow up in a messed up, dysfunctional household, it doesn't matter how successful or happy-go-lucky or well-adjusted you present. I think there's always this little nagging thing inside of you that says, you're not okay. You're a garbage person. Look where you came from. Look what your family is like. Like, you're so dysfunctional. You sort of carry that around with you all the time. And I think that when you are in an abusive family situation or a toxic or dysfunctional family situation, you just are trained to not talk about it. You're trained to not tell anyone. You're trained to put on a happy face. And I think these on- the reason why these online communities resonate is because you can finally talk about it and realize, oh, like my family is dysfunctional, but it's not dysfunctional in some way that's completely out of the ordinary. In fact, it follows a textbook working definition of, of XYZ pathology. I think, that's, I think there's a real power in realizing that you're not alone and that even if you internalize that you can't talk about these things, you can. And there are other people out there who are dealing with them and have, you know, bested them and have moved out or whatever. Other people have found ways of coping and you can too. Like people report finding this subreddit raised by narcissists and just being shocked and thinking, oh my God, this whole time I thought my family was just really up and I was up and like all of that. And then realizing, oh, it's not me. It's this person. It's this dynamic. It's this psychosis or whatever. Yeah, and you aren't the only one who sees the value in offering this safe space for people with narcissistic parents. From Duffy, he says, Children of narcissists can benefit greatly from the support of other kids suffering similar circumstances, and forums like this can be great stress relievers. And Doctor of Psychology Eliza Ruby Bash, a family and marriage therapist, agrees. She says, Usually children whose parents are narcissists or have NPD have lots of personal issues and trauma. It can be so refreshing for anyone to express their family drama and feel a connection with others who have experienced similar things. Yeah, and I think it's so empowering to know that you can tap into a community of folks who are all dealing with this. Some of the people who post on that subreddit are adults who have long moved away and gotten married and started families who are still working through their trauma and their issues with a narcissistic parent. And some of them are young people who are living at home, who are in high school or middle school, who are looking for, you know, assurance that there is life out there outside of this dysfunction. And honestly, it really can be this like special way that young people who are dealing with this or people who are still living at home who are dealing with this can see other people who have moved out and started families, blah, 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 to see that they, that they can also get past it and move on with their lives. And there are different ways of doing it. Like you can, you know, you don't have, like you're not going to be stuck in that situation forever. Yeah. And while they're a wonderful piece of dealing with a narcissistic parent, it is important to note that they can't replace working with an actual mental health professional. Both Duffy and Bash caution anyone from using an online forum as their single source of healing. As Duffy explains, my concern with forums like this is that they are typically not regulated by a qualified mental health professional. Only an expert can be, well, an expert at helping someone to cope with a loved one who has a serious disorder such as NPD. Exactly. But they also point out that therapy and online communities can kind of work together effectively. One member of the subreddit says that they actually find that the skills they learn in therapy sessions are reinforced by the posts on that subreddit. So if their therapist says, do X, Y, Z, oftentimes they find those messages and those coping skills reinforced on the subreddit. So it can kind of work together, work in tandem 
But it's important to note that, you know, a subreddit is not a, a replacement for actual mental health professionals, you know, being involved. Sure. If listening to this, you think maybe your parents might have NPD, here are some questions from Psychology Today that can help you suss out whether or not your parent is a narcissist. When you discuss your life issues with your mother, does she divert the discussion to talk about herself? When you discuss your feelings with your mother, does she try to top the feeling with her own? Does your mother like empathy for your feelings? Does your mother only support those things that you do that reflect on her as a, quote, good mother? Have you consistently felt a lack of emotional closeness with your mother? Does your mother only do things for you when others can see? When something happens in your life, like accident, illness, or divorce, does your mother react with how it will affect her rather than how you feel? Is or was your mother overly conscious of what others think? Neighbors, family, friends, coworkers. Does your mother blame things on you or others rather than own responsibility for her own feelings or actions? Is or was your mother hurt easily and then carries a grudge for a long time without resolving the problem? Do you feel your mother knows the real you? Did you feel you had to take care of your mother's emotional needs as a child? Do you find it difficult to be a separate person from your mother? Do you feel valued by your mother for what you do rather than who you are? So I should point out that even though this particular article pertained to mothers, any parent, anybody can be a narcissist. So, you know, you can replace that with parent. But Again, if you're listening to those questions and you think, boy, that sounds like my relationship with my mom or my dad, it, it could be that you're not just ungrateful, you're not just a bad child. Maybe you're actually being kind of manipulated into thinking that you're terrible because your parent is a narcissist. Like maybe that's what's going on. Even if you've internalized that it's your fault, maybe it's not. Yeah, and if you're dealing with a narcissistic parent, we do have some tips for you. The first one being talk to a professional if that is an option open to you because just like a subreddit is super helpful, it's it's only a piece. This podcast that you're listening to, we're not professionals. We're, we're hopefully a piece of having the information and tools you need to to help. We're just a piece. So if if you think that perhaps you have a narcissistic parent and talking to a professional is something that is an option for you, absolutely go do it. Another thing I found really fascinating that I had never heard before is watch out for becoming a co-narcissist. Basically, according to Dr. Alan Rappaport, people who become co-narcissists because they have been raised around a narcissist and they've been raised to make this person happy, fulfill this other person's needs, emotional and otherwise, you just sort of become someone who that's your default setting. It's just pleasing others. And you sort of completely lose their sense of self. He says that co-narcissistic people, as a result of their attempts to get along with their narcissistic parents, work hard to please others, defer to others' opinions, worry about how others think and feel about them, and are often depressed or anxious. They find it hard to know their own views and experiences and take the blame for interpersonal problems. And so if you find yourself becoming someone who just by default loses your own sense of self, your own identity, your own opinions, like watch out for that. That can be a... a, a a function of growing up with someone who is a narcissist. Another tip that we touched on earlier is establishing boundaries. Remember that you are allowed to have your own life and your own needs, and that is something that a narcissistic parent won't understand. Yeah, boundaries are very important. Also, understand the difference between conditional and unconditional love. The counseling directory recommends that one of the main ways that daughters can heal from a narcissistic mother is to, quote, 
recognize the internalized messages of conditional love and the effects in your love life and relationships, both with others and yourself. Basically, conditional love is affection and love that you get only when you demonstrate some sort of behavior that pleases a narcissist. And if you don't demonstrate that behavior, it seems as if you are not worthy of affection. Conversely, unconditional love, you know, you have it no matter how you are. If you're, you know, up or down, fat or skinny, good or bad, you know, it doesn't matter if you are doing the things that make someone else feel good and look good and affirm them. You are loved for who you are unconditionally. And I think when you are raised by a narcissist, it is hard to understand that that is something that you are worthy of, that you are worthy of having someone in your life who loves you unconditionally, but you are, and that you should work to find it. Yeah. And if you need to cut off contact or go low contact, that's okay. It's it's hard to do sometimes, but it's okay, and you need to consider your own your own health and well-being. Yeah, when looking at some of the ways that folks are coping on raised by narcissists, I was very surprised to see that they have all different kinds of spectrums. It's not just cut your parent out of your life forever or be a victim of their abuse forever. You can go low contact where you, where you talk to them sometimes. You can have contact that is purposefully, you know, surface where you just talk about boring things like laundry and the weather so that you can't really engage your parents' narcissistic tendencies. Um, there are all different kinds of relationships that you can maintain with, a, with somebody who's toxic in your life if you don't feel like you can cut them off entirely. But if you feel like cutting them off entirely, that's a, that's a completely reasonable, you know, reasonable thing to do. If you feel like this person is never going to change and that you can no longer subject yourself to this, to this sort of negativity and toxicity, if that's your outcome, that is okay. Like, I don't feel like we say that enough, that it's okay if you have to be like, listen, I love you and I'll always love you, but I just can't have you in my life like this. That's okay. Yes, that is certainly something I didn't hear until I was older. I didn't even kind of realize that was an option, the thing that you could do. And it absolutely is. And sometimes it's the best option to take. Absolutely. That brings us to the end of this episode on on narcissism and narcissist and to listener mail. Conrad wrote, I want to contribute my perspective on toxic masculinity as a highly sensitive person and a person on the autism spectrum. Content warning for physical and emotional stress from bullying. My experience of being on the spectrum has been a lifetime of hypersensitivity to my emotions and to external stimuli, an extreme interest in emotional and meaningful storytelling, and a complete lack of interest in being stoic or competitive or playing rough or sometimes being social at all. I much preferred to read Aragon fan fiction in 10th grade than go out for pizza because books were predictable, they were explicit, and they didn't kick me out for being weird. Looking back on the beginning of my time in school among other boys, there was rampant homophobia overt aggression, and hatred of anything feminine from the very start. Being highly sensitive, it was exhausting to fake being this masculine, stoic, tough boy who didn't cry and didn't like smelling the flowers and certainly didn't like to read Nancy Drew in fourth grade. Tougher than for most, I gather. But the consequences of being seen as sensitive or weird by my peers was so immediate and so harsh that I kept trying to be like the other, less sensitive boys, even though it hurt so much to fake. I haven't thought about my elementary and high school years in a while. They are a tough time to think about. Since leaving high school, I have spent the past five years trying to undo all those toxic ideas I learned, starting with homophobia and transphobia. I had to teach myself how to acquire enthusiastic, in ongoing consent at 19 years old. 
something no one in my family or friends had bothered to teach me, and something I hadn't learned because I learned differently than most people. Star Trek taught me the most about being feminist, starting with just how many different beautiful ways there are to live a good life and how to make my own decisions independent of other people. Dax, Data, and Seven of Nine are some of my favorite characters. Each of them is trying to make sense of who they are and how to best live life true to themselves. I'm trying to do the same one day at a time. Thanks for making the podcast from one bad feminist to another. Thank you so much, Conrad. That was a beautiful letter to receive, and we were, we were so happy to get it and to, to read about your experience. Nicole wrote, This is a really late email to this podcast episode, but at the end, I remember Annie and Bridget asking about what are other options for neighborhood dispute resolution besides calling the police. In Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations, the agency that enforces the city's anti-discrimination laws, has a unit called Community Relations Division that works to mediate disputes between neighbors. The city is divided into neighborhoods that are managed by a really talented group of experienced mediators who work closely with the residents to assist neighbors in resolving disputes without the police. Oftentimes, community relations is called by the police after a neighbor dispute has arisen because the dispute is not necessarily in the jurisdiction or purview of the police. I hope this is helpful and provides a resource for more information on how the city is trying to not have people call the police for every little thing, even though I know it's still happening. Um, I love this. I think it's really cool to know that other cities, particularly a city as big as Philadelphia, does have a resource for dis- resolving disputes between neighbors and community members that doesn't involve someone with a gun showing up, right? That it's a way to mediate these things it's a little bit less, you know, like, like there's no need to call 911 over a, a, over a lawn dispute or something, right? So I love this. Thank you so much for writing in. Yes, thanks to both of them for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is momstuff at hustaforks.com. And you can always find us on social media or on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You and on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast. Thanks as always to our producers, Dylan Fagan and Kathleen Quillian. And thanks to you for listening. 